This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment is all about what happens if my spouse files for bankruptcy. And licensed insolvency trustee Blair Manton is going to answer some pretty commonly asked questions about how your credit rating, your debts, assets, income will and won't be impacted if your spouse declares personal bankruptcy in British Columbia. So money obviously plays a big role in households and relationships. Blair, can you talk a little bit about the general impact that debts can have in this? Oh, certainly, Elaine. You know, from the clients that I deal with, you know, it's definitely the case that a money problem um, can cause relationship problems, can cause health problems. You know, it can be so much bigger than just the numbers on the page. Uh, And the recent research really bears this out. So um, some research by RBC uh, found that half of Canadians, or just under 47% of our surveyed, said finances are one of the biggest stressors um, in their relationship. And in the same survey, they delved a little bit deeper and said roughly one-third of people said they found it hard to talk about finances with their partner and weren't comfortable talking about each other's financial situations. And I see that very regularly as I'm sitting down uh, with clients, with couples, and sometimes I can see when one person is is telling me about their debts. This is also the first time the partner might be hearing about that as well. Um, The survey indicated that just under a third said they only talk to their partner about finances a couple of times a year, uh, with 5% saying they never do this. And I'd actually be surprised that 5% isn't a little bit underreported because from my experience, a lot of couples just seem to you know, postpone or, or procrastinate in having that discussion because they think it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and it's more men than women are actually uncomfortable talking about finances. So it was about 38% of men said that they were uncomfortable compared to about 25% um, of women. So it's not always the stereotype uh, that you know, the male in the relationship is handling all the finances and the woman is less financially sophisticated. I think that stereotype went away a generation ago. Um, this research is showing it's actually women are a little bit more willing to have um, that difficult conversation, perhaps, about financial transparency uh, with their partner. And it's just really important that as a, when you're in a relationship that you do understand the potential impact on the family unit um, and on each partner of the debt that's brought into the relationship and how those things can change um, versus the debt that's accumulated as a family. Interesting. So um, I want to ask you just a personal question, Blair. The statistic about men, you know, more men than women express their discomfort with talking about finances. Did that surprise you or does that really sort of come out in, in your regular dealings with folks? You know, I don't think it surprised me. I think it does turn the bit of the stereotype on its head. But from my experience, um, I think men sometimes have a little bit of a tougher time, um, especially even reaching out for help, Um, you know, having that vulnerability, saying, okay, you know, I'm admitting what I don't know, or perhaps there's some mistakes that I've made. Um, I think just being a guy myself, sometimes it's tough, you know, to actually admit that you Mm -hmm. don't know, um, or that you maybe have made a mistake, where I think women sometimes are a little bit more likely to reach out for help a little bit sooner, which is definitely a strength of character compared to, to a Right. Interesting. Okay. So what are some of the impacts of one person's debt uh, to a spouse or a partner? How does that work? 
Well, the first thing that I want people to understand, uh, and most people are surprised about this, but in Canada, spouses do not automatically share responsibility for each other's debt. So just because you marry somebody and that person might have a bunch of debt, you're not automatically responsible just because you become married or because you've been common law for a couple of years. You know, legally, you may be in a union, but the debt that you brought into that union remains your own. It doesn't become a joint debt. And a lot of people think there's the old saying, you know, you marry somebody, you marry their debt. Well, you really don't. Uh, now, where debt does become become shared is if you've actively co-signed um, on a joint debt together, uh, but that's, you know, an active thing. You would know it's a joint account. You would know you have co-signed. Um, so you really have to understand someone bringing debt into a marriage doesn't mean that both partners have, partners have to be responsible to it. But where your spouse can be responsible for some debt, um, first off, is if you separate. So upon the breakdown of a relationship, um, if in that relationship there was a bunch of debt accumulated, and it was accumulated in one partner's name only, but it was for the benefit of both both parties, that debt can be split by going to court and it's under the Family Law Act. So it is possible uh, if you're in a relationship, in a marriage, upon the dissolution of that relationship, some of the debt could be shared. Uh, but the more common way that debt uh, becomes joint is, again, if you're co-signing, uh, guaranteeing, or sometimes even being a co-cardholder um, on a credit card account. So you want to always make sure um, you understand that if you are going to put your finances together, if you're going to start borrowing jointly, uh, um, that the liability you've got at that point um, is for both of you. And it can be a joint and several liability, which means if one partner is unable to pay, well, then the other partner is held for 100% of the responsibility. Okay. So I just want to throw in at this point, if, you, if you've been listening to Blair talk about the situation and you already know that you've heard enough to know that you need to take some action, uh, give Sands & Associates a call. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or go to their website, sands-trustee.com, and set up an appointment and just see uh, may, if your situation warrants some action, some very uh, serious action, then Sands & Associates are the ones to help you through that. Uh, can you explain a little bit how it works if one spouse or a partner is filing bankruptcy? What does it mean, or does it mean, I guess, does the other partner go through it too? It absolutely doesn't mean that the other person is declared bankrupt, Elaine. So that's another really important thing because sometimes people really hesitate to reach out um, saying, you know, I know I need the help, but I just really don't want it to impact, um, you know, my spouse or partner. I don't want them to be dragged into the bankruptcy the same as me. Um, and what happens is that bankruptcy is a completely individual proceeding. So one spouse could file for bankruptcy and have little to zero impact um, on the other spouse if there's no shared assets and no shared debts. And just by by filing for bankruptcy, there's nothing that happens that automatically shifts responsibility for unpaid debts uh, for one to the other. So unless you're a co-signer, unless you're joint on the account, uh, one partner choosing to file for bankruptcy or even making a consumer proposal um, is not going to have an impact on the other partner. Just that co-signing thing, that's the thing that will get you. Uh, so to be sure, you, you know what your situation, I guess, is going in at that point. Mm -hmm, absolutely. What about assets? Yeah, that's a great, great point, Elaine. Um, so a lot of people think, you know, when you go into bankruptcy, you're losing all of your assets, uh, which is not typically the case. Most people end up retaining all of their assets because there are provincial exemptions that allow you to keep certain things like all of your RRSPs, uh, your clothing, your furniture, a vehicle, your tools of the trade, um, you know, even real estate up to a certain amount of equity. So in general, most people that file for bankruptcy are able to retain their assets. 
but be aware that if you're in, again, a marriage, cohabitation, whatever sort of legal union, um, if one spouse files for bankruptcy, any assets that are held by the other spouse have no bearing whatsoever on that bankruptcy proceeding. So that's why it's so important for spouses to really understand, um, you know, who has the debt and is it shared or is it a single responsibility? Because I've seen it far too many times where one partner um, in the union has significant assets. Maybe they've got, you know, fifty or $60,000 of savings they've built up over time. Um, the other person in the relationship has that equivalent amount of debt. And they think, well, you know, we should just use the family assets to pay off the family debt. And they end up at zero at the end of the day. They've used all the assets to pay the debt, which, you know, no one would say that they've done a bad thing. They've, you know, really just tried to honor the obligations. But legally, um, the partner who had the debt could have restructured that debt, either done a proposal or a bankruptcy, and there would be no legal claim on the other partner's savings. In this example, you know, the 50 or 60,000. So the couple at the end of the day could be so much better off, have that nest egg, have the future ready for them uh, with those savings, um, or they could have misunderstood what debt they actually owed and have transferred assets to the spouse um, who had the debt and ended up, again, with, with nothing net at the end of the day. So you definitely want to be careful. Now, if you do have some shared assets and you file for bankruptcy, um, things can come into play. So if there's, um, you know, an RESP, for example, where there's both partners, uh, both, both parents are listed on it, uh, it's possible in the bankruptcy that, that the one parent share would have to get paid in or sold. Uh, but typically, um, not much happens to assets in bankruptcy bankruptcy because most of the time when someone has filed for bankruptcy, um, they don't have a whole lot of assets to begin with. Uh, one really important thing to keep in mind is the worst possible thing you can do if you're contemplating filing for bankruptcy or restructuring your debt is to start transferring your assets out of your name, start giving them to your spouse or giving them to other people saying, you know, I know I'm going to lose this. I want to put this out of arm's reach of creditors. You know, oftentimes you just know when you say it out loud, that's not sounding like something that's reasonable and good to do. And if someone were to do that, it's all recoverable, it's all traceable, it ends up being more of a problem for the person who the asset is transferred to, because then they're held accountable to give the asset back, and if it's not there, you know, legal action could be taken against them. So be very careful if you have a bunch of debt, just don't transfer assets unless you get some really good advice ahead of time. Okay, key on that is really good advice from a licensed insolvency trustee is the is the best way to go, and Sands and Associates is, is your place to go as well. What about income, Blair? I bet that comes up for folks. Well, for sure. And when you go into bankruptcy, um, the income you earn, if your spouse is in bankruptcy, it's yours and yours alone. So there's nothing that you need to worry about if your spouse filed for bankruptcy. Um, your spouse is going to be doing a report um, to the trustee showing the household income, the household budget, what's the income and the expenses. But as the non-bankrupt spouse, you're not required to pay any portion of your income into the bankruptcy. And also, you could go one step further. So the trustee is going to ask for the household family income because we want to assist with budgeting and we have to determine the appropriate payment in a bankruptcy. But the non-bankrupt spouse could say, you know what, I don't consent to provide any of this information and it can't be held against the person who's in bankruptcy if their spouse just decides not to, to provide information. The trustee has a different set of calculations they apply, um, but it, it is the case if your spouse filed for bankruptcy, you could choose to give the trustee your income information, you could choose not to give the trustee your income information, but if you are the non-bankrupt spouse, you have no payment obligation no matter what your income is. 
Okay. Now I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit to the end because this is where I think Sands and Associates really shines in terms of how they help or how you help people talk about situations so that you can either get to the bottom of it or help you figure out how to, uh, you know, steps forward. So can you talk a little bit about suggestions uh, to give folks on how to start that conversation about dealing with debt, something that they can do together? Sure. A couple of really important things. Uh, first off, be open and honest with your partner about your finances and your concerns and realize that you may have different levels of financial literacy, but by having that first conversation, it's a, really chance, it's a real chance for you to start that process of learning. Money skills, like every other skill, they take time to build, uh, but you will get good at it over time. Um, second point is to really start making things real by writing it down. So you need to have a written budget, a written plan, have some written goals so you know what you're tracking towards. Um, and you know, one final thing that I always advocate for encouraging financial transparency is to get your credit report at least once a year. Both parties in a relationship, both spouses, sit down, review it together. You're probably going to find some inaccuracies there, but you'll also be completely transparent with each other about your obligations, how things are going, and that can trigger some really good discussions also. Good discussions and a lot of preemptive work that, that might be able to stop a bad habit or a bad situation from getting any worse. And I just think that's such great advice. So to book your free confidential debt consultation to connect with a friendly, non-judgmental Sands and Associate representative in one of the local BC offices, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 or visit the website sands-trustee.com. This segment's all about debt mistakes not to make, not to make, which is such a good idea. Uh, and Blair's going to share some common mistakes that people often make when dealing with their debt. So we're going to learn some tips uh, for how not to solve your financial problems and steps you can take to help get money matters back on track. So first, Blair, is there any general advice you want to share about dealing with debt to get this segment started? Oh, sure, Elaine. You know, there's really, there's no one-size-fits-all solution uh, for getting out of debt, but just the whole idea that being in debt should not be a permanent state. You know, no one should hang around being in debt. It costs money. It often stops us from maximizing our income. It's just a constant drain, even mentally. Um, so the whole objective here is just to say there's always a way out. There's a way to move forward from debt, but there's certainly a few things you can do uh, that are going to make it more difficult to see that way forward or more costly. We're going to try to steer you away from some of those pitfalls in today's session. Um, so for today, the first thing to talk about is, you know, just don't assume that a debt problem can't happen to you. Um, you know, even some of my advertisements say, you know, money problems can happen to anybody at any time. And it's something that's been proven true in my 12, 13 years of seeing clients directly. Uh, it's amazing the different scenarios that can conspire to take somebody uh, from, you know, the highest highs of finances to have, you know, tons of money, tons of equity, tons of disposable income uh, to the point where they're needing our help. And then conversely, to see somebody really emerge from an insolvency proceeding, uh, leave the debt behind, and then suddenly achieve more in their life than they were ever able to achieve before, especially being held back from debt. You know, what we've learned is under the whole idea that it can happen to anybody is that many of the time, many times what causes a financial difficulty is not an 
action that the individual takes, but it's something that just happened to them. Things were going just fine, uh, and then life just threw them a big left turn, um, something like an illness, an injury, or a health-related problem, whether it's yourself uh, or your own family member, uh, marital or relationship breakdown, so the cost of separating, the cost of reestablishing, uh, perhaps two households, could be some legal costs that can be just very financially catastrophic when a relationship breaks down. Um, obviously, the classic of job-related and job loss, um, you know, many people unexpectedly, whether it's a restructuring or a downsize, um, you know, they find themselves without a job through no fault of their own. Uh, and then what we're seeing, you know, more and more is just cost of living outpacing income. So as prices go up more and more, you have a family to feed, you need to keep a roof over, over everyone's head. Um, you know, sometimes that can just squeeze somebody financially. And as you look, well, there's nothing you could have done. You've maximized your income, your costs have gotten out of line, and you've relied on credit to, fi- to fill that gap. Um, so really, we just want people to understand there's a lot of reasons why someone could come to have having a debt problem, and nobody should assume that they're immune from it. It could never happen to them. And I think uh, at any given time, you can look in our current situation, whether it be a pandemic or out-of-control weather situations that put people in peril and like overnight dealing with a catastrophic uh, situation that they did not plan for because it hasn't happened in a 100 years. I mean, this has been the biggest lesson, I think, that things can happen overnight so quickly uh, and we have no control over stopping them from happening. It's just what we do at this point. That's exactly right, Elaine. I think we, we've all learned, you know, just the fragility of the status quo. Let's not assume that tomorrow is going to resemble yesterday, because sometimes it doesn't, as we've seen. Um, yeah. But, you know, what, one final point before we move on to another thing, yeah. to, to, uh, another mistake not to make here, is just really don't be focused on your credit report or your credit mm. score as an indicator of your financial health. Um, you would be amazed the number of people that come into my office that have 800 credit scores, 750, 770, um, but can't borrow another dollar from the bank, are incredibly overextended and have spent huge amounts of money just making all their minimum payments to chase a great credit score. So quite often, the credit score is completely divorced from your overall financial health, and the people that are the most financially healthy might have a zero credit score because they're just not using any credit products or paying any interest each month. So definitely don't focus on that indicator. It's a great reminder. I love it when you talk about that. Uh, Really, really important because it's easy to get caught up in it. Are there other uh, sort of inaction mistakes that you can avoid in dealing with debt, Blair? Oh, certainly. So, you know, under a big category of financial housekeeping, uh, there's a number of things if you don't attend to them, and it's the whole idea, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. So just by doing a little bit over time, uh, you're not going to end up, you know, being really surprised. Uh, but these things can get away from you if you just let things coast. So, you know, first off, a personal budget check-in. So are you sticking to your budget? Are you on track to meet any expenses? Are you accumulating savings? Do you even have a budget? That's a really good test. And if you do, you should be checking in on it monthly at least. Uh, personal tax filings. Um, so sometimes someone gets scared to file taxes because they think they owe the government money. That's definitely your worst plan to go. And the further, uh, further more years you get behind, the more likely the government is to start taking drastic actions against you, like freezing bank accounts or seizing assets. Um, even checking in on your credit report. So as I just mentioned, don't be driven by your credit score by any means, but it is important to make sure that your credit report is accurate, is up to date, that you're not being penalized for maybe someone else's delinquency on your debts, but all the debts that you are paying on time are reflecting accurately. So it's just a good thing to keep on top of. Every Canadian can get a copy of their credit report once per year from each of the credit un- uh, each of the credit bureaus of Equifax and TransUnion. And I would say skip the extra cost of getting your credit score because it's irrelevant. As I said, don't chase it. And every lender calculates their own credit score. So I feel like 
like it's you know a little bit of a bait and switch when everyone advertises online credit score for a fee, but it's nothing that the banks are going to use. They do their own math anyway. So I definitely mm-hmm. recommend skipping that. Excellent. Um, I want to throw in here too, you know, if, if we've already sort of outlined or if Blair sort of already outlined a situation that you're in and you're gulping and thinking, oh, yikes, I need to do something. This is what you need to do. Give Sands and Associates a call. 1-800-661-3030 or go to the website sands-trustee.com and book that appointment. You've talked a lot about uh, just making minimum monthly payments as a very clear sign that you need to do something different, I guess. Oh, definitely, Elaine. And again, that's in our last few years of surveys, the number one most reported warning sign was just people finding, hey, I'm just making minimum payments each month. I'm not getting further ahead. So it is getting, you know, the consciousness is out there that minimum payments are designed to keep you in debt, not to help you pay off debt. And it's not always the case that, you know, the big balances are, are the biggest problems. You know, even a $1,000 credit card bill um, could take you 10 years to pay off if you only make the, the minimum monthly payments at 18%, uh, and you're going to pay almost double that amount that you originally charged. So you can imagine a thousand dollars in ten years from now. I'm still going to be paying it off. Well, if you're only making the minimum payments, yeah, that that is correct. So a huge warning sign. If all you're able to do is make the minimum payments, your credit score probably looks great. Your budget might be okay, but those balances that might be large and looming, um, they're not getting paid down in any sort of a, of a speedy fashion. I know you've got a really good list of sort of the common debt mistakes that folks make dealing with debt, and as a result, it just makes it far more challenging for them as they go through this. Yeah, the, the one that breaks my heart the most, Elaine, I know we've, we've said it a number of times, but unfortunately I still do see clients that have done this, uh, is cashing in RRSPs, so cashing in their retirement funds, and sometimes they've gotten advice from the bank, and I'm just going to assume it's someone that wasn't well-informed, they didn't have nefarious intent, sometimes they've gotten no advice from anyone, but just thought they should do it, and what I'm talking about is you've got this retirement fund, and RRSP, you decide to pull that money out because you have some debt. Why this is such bad idea, a bad idea? is first, you have that money saved for a reason. It's for your retirement. And what are you going to do if that money is not there? You're just going to be giving yourself more hardship in the future because that money is probably going to be very difficult to replace. Um, Secondly, uh, many people understand this, but some don't. RRSP withdrawals are taxable. So you got the tax deduction when you put the money in. When you pull that money out, right off the top, there's going to be a withholding tax. Maybe it's 20 to 30%, but that might not even be enough. You might find at the end of the year, you think you've done everything right. You pulled out your RRSPs, you paid off the debt, and then suddenly the government is coming to you and saying, well, we need a whole lot more tax on those RRSP funds. And then now you, you thought you were stressed when you owed the bank money. Imagine when you owe CRA money, how that feels. Um, and folks need to understand, because I think this is why the cash in the RRSPs, they think, well, if I have to file a bankruptcy, I'm going to lose this stuff anyway. So, you know, let me at least be in control, you know, uh, control my own destiny. And the number one thing for people to know is RRSPs are 100% protected. If you file for bankruptcy, if you have whatever amount of money in RRSPs, you know, as long as you haven't thrown in a ton of money in the year prior to you filing for bankruptcy, which usually is not the case, but anything that's been there for more than 12 months is 100% protected. Nobody can ever force you to cash in those funds. It's not going to require you to pay more into your bankruptcy. You could deal with the debt, still save your retirement out the other side. And that's the outcome I I wish more people could achieve rather than having cashed in their RRSPs. Often they end up with the tax bill. It's not enough to clear the debt. They might end up in my office anyway. And it's what a night and day situation to finishing a bankruptcy and still having your retirement intact to finishing a bankruptcy and then starting to save again. 
Excellent. Um, the next, the next part of what we were going to talk about has been relying on debt as a debt solution. Can you really explain that? <laughs> yeah. Well, what a lot of people try to do as, as a first step when you find yourself in debt is kind of to borrow your way out of it. So to say, okay, I've got all this debt. I've got it at you know nineteen or twenty nine or more percent interest. Why don't I get a consolidation loan? Ideally, to be one single payment, which will simplify things for me, and hopefully, it's going to be a much lower interest rate, maybe something closer to ten or twelve percent, uh, not the twenty or thirty percent they might be paying. So it sounds great in theory, and it can work well. Uh, but quite often, what people run into is they're not able to qualify for a consolidation loan unless they're compelled to make some really poor financial decisions for them that put the bank in a much better position than they would have been in otherwise. And these are things like using an asset as a collateral. So maybe pledging a house or a car or a secured investment or something like that. You've now allowed a creditor, if you don't pay, you've given them a direct line to take an asset from you. Whereas if you hadn't pledged that asset, they would have a much tougher time. You might be able to take steps to protect yourself. But if you've granted security for something that you owe, again, I see this often with a vehicle. People have a paid off vehicle. They get a consolidation loan. They pledge their car as collateral. And then sometimes the terms of these loans are if you miss a few payments, two or three payments, we take your car, we put it in storage until you pay the loan off, and we charge you 30 to $50 a night in storage fees, which essentially means we're taking your car and you're not getting it back. So it can yeah. be very, um, you know, just an incredibly bad outcome if you pledge an asset as collateral. But also what can be even worse is starting to bring in co-signers. So starting to say, you know, the bank's willing to give me this loan, but I need mom, dad, brother, sister, or friend, or someone to sign on the dotted line to be responsible. You've now just in large that debt problem to include people that you love and that love you and want to help you. But if you need to restructure your debts in the, per- in the future, like doing a proposal or perhaps a bankruptcy, whoever has co-signed those debts is going to be left 100% responsible for those debts. So my impression, my, my advice is it's never worth getting a consolidation loan. If you have to pledge an asset or pledge a co-signer, it almost always is going to lead to a bad outcome. And we're inundated, and we just have a few seconds left, but inundated with ads telling us who to go to to get the help. And and clearly, somebody like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee, is the best place to go to get help with debt. Absolutely, Elaine. We're the only people that are licensed by the federal government to actually help you legally restructure your debt, and it costs nothing to meet with us. It's a free confidential consultation. You'll meet with me or a member of my team. Guaranteed you're going to learn more and feel better at the end of the consultation and not going to cost you anything. And here's the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or you can visit the website, make an appointment through there, sans-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. This segment's all about debt solutions. Going to, Blair's going to explain to us all about a consumer proposal, the basics and the advantages. We're going to learn what a consumer proposal is. And don't be afraid or concerned that you haven't heard of this term before. Uh, it's going to cover who can file one and how this super flexible debt solution could work as a debt management strategy for you. And, and Blair from Sands and Associates is going to explain. And Blair, you've described consumer proposals as a solution for folks to consolidate without borrowing and cut debt without bankruptcy. Uh, but before we get into the details and advantages, can you take us through some of the real basics to a consumer proposal and then we'll do a bit of a deep dive on it? 
With pleasure, Elaine. I think I've often said, and the listeners would know, I think one of my reasons for being on this earth is to make a consumer proposal more well-known because it is the most powerful debt solution you might never have heard of. And I've just seen the impact on individuals, how life-changing it can be. Someone just feels very despondent, thinks bankruptcy is their only way out from unmanageable debt. And this proposal can be just a complete lifeline, allowing them to restructure and feel good about the solution that they've chosen. So what a consumer proposal is, it's a formal process, so it's legally supervised by a licensed insolvency trustee, and it's where you make a restructuring of your debt or a legal offer to your creditors to settle your debts in full, but without requiring full payment. So consumer proposals usually offer to repay a percentage of the total debts owed within a period of up to five years. And if you need to go longer than five years, there's different options, but typically a five-year term is the maximum time someone should be paying off a debt, in our opinion. So a consumer proposal gives an affordable option for someone who wants to consolidate their debt, but maybe they don't qualify with the bank or they can only qualify with a co-signer, for example. Uh, But it also allows you to reduce the amount of debt that you're paying back down to something that you can afford. So even if the bank would agree to consolidate, but there's just not a way that you could afford to repay 100% of the debt plus the interest charges on top of that, um, that's what a consumer proposal can do. It can reduce the debt and stop the interest. And in terms of what types of debt can be included, Uh, It's almost easier to say what types of debt can't be included. It's pretty all-encompassing, everything from uh, credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, income taxes, personal debts. Um, Just about any debt that's owing can be restructured and reduced as part of a consumer proposal proceeding. So with that, there's got to be some pretty strict requirements on who can actually do a consumer proposal, or is that the flexibility of it, that everybody or it pertains possibly pertains to everybody. Well, the objective of when the government created a consumer proposal was to give uh, people a means of avoiding bankruptcy, of avoiding, you know, a bigger loss to their creditors, for example, and then, you know, having the, the personal impact of having gone through a bankruptcy. So they deliberately made a consumer proposal very accessible, uh, very easy to qualify for, uh, with the hope that more people would start to choose proposals over bankruptcy. And what we've seen is, my gosh, that trend has taken off like a rocket ship. Uh, the most recent statistics in BC is it's almost 80% of people who are filing a formal insolvency proceeding are now filing a consumer proposal and 20% are filing bankruptcy. Obviously, before proposals existed, that was 100% bankruptcy. And even as recent as five or six years ago, it was more, you know, 60, 40 more proposals than bankruptcies, but it's really, really increased in the last few years. In terms of who can do a consumer proposal, um, anyone who owes more than $1,000 and less than $250,000, and that's excluding the mortgage on a principal residence. So that's a pretty wide band of individuals who are in debt, and for the most part, it's in the range of, you know, twenty dollars to $60,000 of debt is probably where we see most proposals, but we can see some, you know, as low as five dollars or $10,000 of debt, and sometimes there's hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt where we're doing a proposal on, because maybe there's, you know, a business failure or an ICBC award or something along those lines. Uh, it is possible to do a joint consumer proposal, so say for a husband and wife, or even just two people whose finances are interlinked, um, you do a joint consumer proposal, and if you do that, the debt threshold raises to $500,000. So it's definitely it's a widely flexible tool. It can handle most um, situations where people find themselves overextended financially. 
Um, I just want to mention, too, that if this is already sort of describing your situation and you want to learn more about the consumer proposal or sit down and talk with somebody about it to see if it's right for you, if it's the right uh, action to take, very easy to do. Uh, give Sands and Associates a call. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030, uh, or visit the website sands-trustee.com uh, to make that appointment. So where does a licensed insolvency trustee come in in this consumer proposal world, Blair? Well, in order to access a consumer proposal, you have to choose the licensed insolvency trustee that you'd like to work with. You can't do a consumer proposal on your own. Lawyers aren't empowered to help you with this remedy. It's only a licensed insolvency trustee can assist you. And when you make a consumer proposal, what happens is you stop making payments to all of your creditors who are included in the proposal, and they're barred from contacting you from payment or charging you any interest. It's the same protection as if you had filed for bankruptcy. The trustee steps in the middle between you and the people that you own money to and puts a stop to any creditor harassment, any collection actions, including calls, any court proceedings, even any wage seizures. You know, if you're getting paid in a few days and the trustee has the documents filed in time, we're going to stop that wage seizure and not let it happen ever again. So the trustee is really your your administrator of your proposal, the person that stands in the middle and gets the deal done for you. Uh, once the creditors have agreed to accept your proposal, so the way a proposal works, you file it with the trustee and then there's a period of 45 days where the trustee sends the proposal to your creditors, and then the creditors vote back to accept or reject the proposal. 95% of the time, they accept the first offer in a proposal. 99% of the time, if we negotiate, we still reach a deal. So it's still a very, very high success rate. And once the proposal is accepted, you make payments typically on a monthly basis to your trustee, and then the trustee disseminates those payments or distributes them out uh, to the people that you owe money to a few times a year based on whoever owes you the most gets the most money, whoever owes you, whoever you owe the least uh, gets a little bit less. It's all on a pro rata fair basis. Okay. Um, the other cool thing and, and uh, that Sands & Associates offers is the opportunity for, for you to not get in that situation again, to learn some skills, to figure out what went wrong, how it went wrong, and then how to make sure it doesn't happen again with some really good counseling. Yeah, that's such an important part of the process. So, you know, it's one thing to reduce the debt, and we're very proud of what we can do, um, but it is the two financial counseling sessions, one-on-one -on -one sessions with our professionals here. You'll understand some great tips about budgeting, about financial goal setting, about how to rebuild your credit with the whole idea of making it, you know, a one-time pit stop on your life. You do this, you get, you know, some good corrections, uh, and then you move forward with some really good skills. Um, and, in, and in finishing off this segment, I think it's really important um, to talk about the advantages to why a consumer proposal works better or is a better choice over other debt management options like a consolidation loaner or even bankruptcy. And you've got some really good reasons why the consumer proposal works. Yeah, I think three big reasons here that we'll, we'll go through. So one is that it can cut your debt and stop the interest. So sometimes if you look around, if you're going to see a credit counselor, for example, they can stop the interest, but you still have to pay back 100% of the debt. When you're dealing with a trustee, it's based on what you can afford to pay back. And quite often it's in the range of 30% repayment, maybe 20, maybe 40, something along those lines. But it's often a very significant reduction in the total amount payable. And that's only available with a consumer proposal. 
Uh, a second advantage is it actually allows you to keep your assets. So if you want to keep paying on your mortgage or keep paying on your car, a consumer proposal doesn't require you to surrender either of those, but it does give you the option. Let's say you're significantly underwater on your car loan. You owe way more than what the car is worth. You could decide as part of your proposal, I want to give this car back, have it you know, collected from me as part of the proposal, and I'm going to get a new vehicle so I can end that obligation, but it's not your requirement to do so. And the last thing is just really to understand this is not a permanent mark on your credit history. It's something that you will recover from probably quicker than you think. Uh, the day you file a proposal, six years after that day is when it comes off your credit report like it had never happened, um, or three years from when you pay it off, whatever is sooner. Um, but it is the case people can restructure and rebuild their credit even as soon as a couple of years after they've signed the proposal. They often start to get offers of credit, and definitely six years from the day that you filed that proposal, so probably a year after you finished paying it off, it's gone. It's like it never happened, and you never have to say yes to that question, have you filed a bankruptcy? You haven't. You did a completely different remedy called a consumer proposal. And can you just explain in the last few seconds that we've got, how do you get paid? How does a licensed insolvency trustee get paid in a consumer proposal? Well, that's a great point, Elaine. There's nothing extra the person is ever required to pay. Whatever is determined they can afford to pay back, maybe it's 30% of the debt, for example, the trustee gets paid out of that. It's all set by government tariff, and it's taken off of the payments before they're distributed to creditors. Very much on the up and up in every way, shape, and form. And, and uh, licensed insolvency trustee are the only ones who can facilitate this for you. Uh, if you want to learn about more of your options and choose a debt-free plan that's the best one for you, book your free and confidential debt consultation with Sands & Associates. Here's their phone number again, 1-800-661-3030, or visit the website sands-trustee.com. So this segment's all about a debt problem warning signs and where you can get professional help. So without obvious indicators of trouble, because I'm sure that can be often the case, spotting a debt problem isn't always the easiest. And according to Sands & Associates president and our very own BC licensed insolvency trustee Blair Manton, lots of consumers don't even recognize the financial warning signs. Uh, until it's a financial crisis and you're right in it. So let's learn about some key debt cautions and where to get help with a debt problem. So first, Blair, can you share a bit about why it's so important to keep up with our personal finances and stay ahead of that debt? Well, certainly, Elaine. And from my experience, um, the really important thing to know is that most people underestimate their debt problem, at least for a period of time. Um, I think it's just typically we think it can't happen to us. Uh, we think, you know, next month we're going to get further ahead. And sometimes we just get used to being in that constant cycle of making debt payments, the cycle of borrowing, we're making all the minimums, but then we're charging more into the cards. Um, and then a lot of people don't realize how close they actually are to a financial crisis until some external event comes, something outside of their control, and really puts a shock to their system, and they just don't have the resilience to recover from something like that. So, you know, the typical ones that we see all the time, a marital breakdown, um, illness or injury, whether it's for you or for a family member, uh, job-related issues, um, you know, all of these things um, can, can trigger a cash crunch. Um, and you may not realize how much of an impact a financial problem can have if you've never been through one. From our research with our clients, we do a detailed survey every year uh, of almost 2,000 of our clients with detailed responses. Uh, they say, you know, the impact are over 
overwhelming stress, anxiety, and depression, even to the extent of one in six people say they contemplated suicide uh, because they just didn't see any way out of their financial difficulties. Uh, people constantly think about their finances and their debt, and that triggers you know, crises of self-esteem, putting life events on hold, uh, and then you know, the physical manifestations of poor sleep, high blood pressure. So the thing that we really would want people to do at Sands and Associates, and the reason why we do this show, is to really encourage people to reach out before it gets to that point. Um, you know, if you're starting to feel like you have a debt problem, you've probably had a debt problem for a period of time, and it's really impacting your life in more ways than you, you probably can see uh, right as, as you look in the, in the moment. That's such good information, Blair, because I think so many people think they're all alone in this. But those kinds of numbers and that kind of information just shows that you're not. You're not alone. There's lots of people who get into these situations, and there's a really great way to then see yourself out of it. So can you talk more about some of the warning signs that we should be aware of? Uh, I guess warning signs that we are we are in financial problems and we have a debt issue and we need to take some action? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot, Elaine, about, you know, uh, some of the more obvious warning signs. We'll say, you know, if you're missing your payments completely, if you're getting collection calls, if your wages are being seized, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, you've got a debt problem you need to deal with, but there are some warning signs that can creep up as a slow build, and you might not even know it's a warning sign until you've been doing it for a period of time. Uh, one of the main ones that falls into this category is only making minimum payments, and this was the most reported warning sign in our most recent survey of our clients. That's how people knew they had a debt problem and it's for good reason because when you're just making minimum payments on a credit card or heaven forbid you know a payday loan or an installment loan you're servicing the interest you're keeping the account current and your credit rating probably looks okay, but you're not actually getting anywhere. You're not paying down the debt, um, and you're probably going to pay thousands in interest charges to keep you in debt for years uh, if all you're making is just that minimum payment each month. You know, we've seen uh, credit cards for the last, I want to say, seven or eight years. They've had that disclosure of, you know, how long it's going to take for you to pay off the debt if you only make the minimum payments. You know, we see 20, 30, 50, even over 100, 150 years sometimes on these statements. Um, and, you know, our guideline is anything more than in five years is, is too long to be stuck in debt. So if you're looking at your statement, you know, sometimes even a $1,000 debt can be 18 years to pay off depending on the interest rate. Um, you know, you need to either decide, I'm going to be able to pay a whole lot more than the minimum, um, or you need to be getting some help. But only making minimum payments is just a huge warning sign. And I want to throw in at this point, too, that if this situation sounds like you or if Blair's just described your situation, Sands & Associates is easy to give a call to. It's 1-800-661-3030 or check the website sands-trustee.com and make that appointment. Um, can we talk about the, pay, the uh, continuing to use credit cards? Uh, that's got to be an issue or credit in period, I guess. Yeah, and this is often symptomatic of, of a larger problem because I often meet with people and I see they've got a few credit cards and then they've got a consolidation loan. And when I talk to them about, well, how'd the consolidation loan come around? Oh, the credit cards were maxed out. So we went to the bank, they agreed to consolidate a lower interest rate. Uh, so that's why all the cards were at zero at that point. Yeah but now they're back up to where they were, yeah. Mm. And we, as we dig in deeper, we often find the issue is there's an imbalance in the budget um, that was never looked at seriously. And the person every month is just going further and further into debt. And there's the old adage, if you find yourself in a hole, what's the first thing you do? Well, you stop digging. Um, and yeah. if we look at a number of clients, unfortunately, um, you know, whether it's structural, it could be things like you know rent payments, car payments, things that are a little bit difficult to change, um, or whether it's just you know some... Um, 
frivolous is the wrong word, but some more discretionary um, overspending. It's only by shining a light and really looking in detail on that budget can you pinpoint how the person's gotten into trouble and then also put a stop to it. Because, you know, for the person that I've spoken to, spoken about here with the example of the consolidation and the credit cards, yeah, we can probably help them with a consumer proposal, but if that budget imbalance hasn't been corrected, well, by the time they pay off that consumer proposal, they might be in debt again and need our help. But that's not what we're looking to do. Um, so definitely the continuing to use credit, um, you know, that's a huge warning sign to be aware of. Um, you know, if you're not able to have a budget that balances, forgetting about all the credit payments, if you're relying on credit to make your budget balance each month, um, that's a huge, more subtle, but very huge warning sign that financial difficulty might be in the future. Can you talk about the rule of 60? Because that sort of is a nice dovetail from that. Yeah, and that's the whole idea that, you know, debt should not be a perpetual thing in your life. Um, so we ask people, you know, just to do a quick check-in, and anybody listening can do this, you know, in the space of, you know, probably 10 seconds if you have your information close to you, but add up all of the debt that you have, your non-mortgage debt, your non-car loan, but things like credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, income taxes, so on and so forth, and divide that by 60. So let's say it's $24,000 of debt that you have, you divide that by 60, that's $400 a month, and then ask yourself, if I had to pay off $400 a month, could I do that? Could that fit in my budget? And if you're saying, well, I couldn't afford half that or a quarter of that, well, then realistically, five years from now, you're going to be further in debt than you are now. And it's probably a great indication you should seek some help because a consumer proposal, um, at most, it would be the $400 a month to pay everything off in full. But quite often, it's going to be a portion of that. It might be a half or a quarter, but it's only by seeing, okay, under my current steam, can I get out of this on my own by seeing that that's not possible? That's when you start to reach out for some help. Yeah, and let's talk, let's, let's wrap this segment up with uh, some more ideas around that, the kind of help and support that a licensed insolvency trustee like yourself can offer someone. Well, definitely, you know, a lot of people, they delay reaching out because they think that they're going to be judged, they feel embarrassed uh, and ashamed. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's well-meaning friends or family members that, you know, are almost pushing somebody or pulling somebody to get debt help. And really, it's a personal decision. You can't force somebody to get help. Uh, but people need to realize when they come to see a licensed insolvency trustee like Sands & Associates, they're going to get empathy. They're going to be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, we know there, but for the grace of God, goes anybody. Anybody could find themselves in financial difficulties. And quite often, it's well beyond an individual's control. When we drill down and think, you know, there's nothing I could have done different as a professional. And this person is in my office, um, you know, with a very different difficult debt situation. So the, the less time we can spend beating ourselves up and judging ourselves, the more we can spend on finding solutions. Um, you know, that's the way that we can help people get back on track. So that's so good. And I just want to say, you know, if you if you feel like you're ready to get started with a debt-free plan, you can easily book your free debt consultation with Sands & Associates by giving them a call at 1-800-661-3030 or visit their website, sands-trustee.com. And I just want to say the website's fabulous. There's so many great questions and answers, easy to understand answers if you're just wanting a bit more information before you take that next step. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.